You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.1. This is not a place of honor. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, revisiting 0083 for the first time in 15 years. And I'm Nina, in need of some podcaster boot camp. Time to get my voice recording fit again. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 719 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters Song, Owen O, Ninja Nope, Jose R.M., Tom, Daniel B., Simone C., Tomatey Squirts, Dan H., Alex C., Arvis Presley, Iris J., Cole F., Savat Wolf, Charles I., and Stephen K. You keep us Genki. Welcome. If you're just joining us, this is the eighth season of Mobile Suit Breakdown, and we are here to watch and discuss the direct-to-video miniseries 0083 Stardust Memory. The show consists of 13 episodes, originally released on Laserdisc and VHS over a two-year period, from May 22, 1991 to September 24, 1992. Although hardcore fans and MSB listeners know that the series' official release was actually preceded by a special preview version of the first episode, sold in limited quantities from December 16, 1990, as part of a co-promotion with the movie Formula 91, better known as F91. 0083 entered production while work was still ongoing on F91, and the two works are intimately linked, sharing the honor of being the first Gundam works made for the new Heisei era in Japan, which had started in 1989 with the death of the old Showa Emperor Hirohito and the ascension of his son, the Heisei Emperor Akihito, to the Chrysanthemum Throne. During F91's troubled production, Studio Sunrise dragooned animators from 0083, among other projects, for an emergency final sprint to get the movie finished in time, and a significant number of voice actors also crossed over. The two works form a curious mirror. The story and setting of F91 were intended to push Gundam forward into a new age, to clear the ground and start fresh for the new era. Yet its key creative team was a conscious, intentional throwback to first Gundam, with the original trio of Tomino Yoshiyuki, Yasuhiko Yoshikazu, and Okuara Kunio collaborating for the first time since their fraught reunion on Zeta Gundam half a decade prior. On the other hand, 0083 was led by a new team drawn from a younger generation. Lead director Kase Mitsuko wasn't just the first woman to helm a Gundam series, she joined the project with no prior experience on Gundam whatsoever. Scriptwriter Gobu Fuyunori, in charge of writing the first four episodes, had written for some landmark mecha shows, but never before for Gundam. The same is true for assistant director for the first episode, Watanabe Shinichiro, and sound director, Uragami Yasuo. A few folks on the staff were Gundam stalwarts, moving up into more rarefied positions. Kawamoto Toshihiro took on character design and the chief animation director title, after having worked his way steadily up from animation on First Gundam to key animation on Double Zeta, and then to animation director for three of War in the Pocket's six episodes. Ueda Masuo, a production assistant on First Gundam, now returns as the series producer. 
Masuo, by the way, is active on Twitter, where he has dropped some very juicy behind-the-scenes details about his time at Sunrise back in the day, and you love to see it. The mecha design team included Akitaka Mika, veteran of Gundam Double Zeta, but also Kawamori Shoji of Macross fame, making his first and only contribution to animated Gundam, and designer Katoki Hajime, he of Verka Gumpla fame, in his first credited role on Gundam. Or any other anime, for that matter. Yet despite all of that new blood, the story, the setting, and the themes of 0083 are as preoccupied with the past as F91 is with the future. The two works look like diverging roads, each one offering a different, competing direction for Gundam. Season 8 will cover the 13 regular episodes of Stardust Memory, as well as 0083 Gion no Zanko, a two-hour abridged compilation of the series which aired in theaters on August 29, 1992 actually preceding the release of the final episode by about a month. Gion no Zanko has had various different names in English, including The Fading Light of Zeon and The Last Blitz of Zeon, but our version calls it Afterglow of Zeon. We'll also be covering Sora no Kagero, The Mayfly of Space, an audio drama published on CD in 1992. Part of it was then adapted as an animated featurette and included as bonus content for fans buying the Laserdisc version. A second bonus short, Mayfly of Space 2, was made in 2016 for the 25th anniversary box set re-release. We'll be breaking sequence a little bit and covering both Mayfly of Space adaptations at the end of Season 8. Happily, Gordon over at the Gundam Book Club podcast was able to dig up a copy of the original radio drama, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about it too, at least a little bit. That will bring us to the end of 1992. All in all, a relatively quiet year for Gundam, and the end of Season 8. This week we're going to start by revisiting the first episode of 0083, Gundam Jack, or in Japanese, Gandamu Godatsu. On MSB 7.1, Stardust Premonitions, we did our best to simulate the experience of watching the preview version of this episode, but we didn't actually have a copy of it to reference at the time, so we had to do our best based on some patchy descriptions of what had been changed. Thankfully, archivist and translator Zionic Scanlations had an original copy of the preview VHS in his collection, and he was good enough to make it available for our review. That means we can now make a direct comparison between the two versions. The talkback portion of this week's episode may be a little bit shorter than usual, because we've already talked through this episode pretty extensively, but let's see what as yet unexplored depths we can plumb together. Long-time listeners will know that I often do a kind of history roundup about what was happening in the world uh, just before and during the release of whatever series we're covering in a season. Uh, as Tom pointed out, there are only about two months between the premiere of Mobile Suit Gundam F91 on March 16, 1991, and the release of the first part of Mobile Suit Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory on May 22, 1991. Plenty happened in the world, everything happens so much after all, but it seems unlikely that these two months had much effect on how Stardust Memory was written. However, many processes that began in the months and years before, and that I covered last season, continued through these two months and on and on throughout the release of Stardust Memory. In particular, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, and the international scrutiny of and attempts to disarm Iraq in the aftermath of the Gulf War, both of which I'm hoping to devote full research pieces to rather than trying to cover them lightning fast here. Plus, 
A high-profile death gives us an opportunity to talk about Japanese holdouts in World War II, and why was Stardust Memory released on Laserdisc one day before it was released on VHS? So you can look forward to those topics, and in the meantime, if you want a refresher on the history of the time, check out the history segment in Season 7, Episode 2, Dragon Ball G. The recap segment this week is also going to be nearly identical to the one from MSB 7.1, except for a small portion near the beginning. We're including it here as a refresher and for the benefit of any new listeners. And now, the recap for the release version of Episode 1 of Stardust Memory. The Battle of Abawaku. Zeon Captain Delaz is shocked to receive word that Supreme Commander Giren has been killed, and Lady Kaecilia has taken control of Zeon forces. Loyal to Giren, Delaz orders the retreat of all ships and mobile suits under his command, including a young mobile suit ace, Lieutenant Gato. Though Gato would rather fight on than experience the shame of retreat or surrender, Delaz orders him to endure promising that if they bide their time, they will regain Zeon's glory. Fighting back tears, the lieutenant agrees to retreat. The armistice is signed shortly after, bringing the one-year war to an end. Three years have passed. In desert ruins, a squad of Federation test pilots put a new, upgraded variant of the Jim mobile suit through its paces, in practice battle against three Zaku, repainted in Federation khaki. Zaku pilots Cole, Keith, and Kirks struggle to keep up with 2nd Lieutenant Allen in the new Jim Powered, and their commanding officer, Lieutenant South Burning, watches from a nearby monitoring station. Meanwhile, the new Federation carrier Albion, under command of Captain Synapse, passes over the vast underwater crater where the city of Sydney once stood, before Zeon's Operation British annihilated it. They are carrying special cargo, two new Gundam-type mobile suits developed by arms manufacturer Anaheim Electronics, and the young engineer who designed them, Nina Purpleton. Soldiers, still loyal to Xeon, hide among the sun-baked rock formations nearby, watching the Albion's approach. They have been expecting it, and its arrival is a trigger. Their leader, the silver-haired Commander Gato, signals the start of something called Operation Stardust. The Albion's arrival was also preceded by rumors about its cargo, and Torrington Base, the normally quiet Federation facility just north of Sydney Crater, hums with excitement as the shining descendant of the fabled White Base sets down in a cloud of dust. The test pilots are eager to put the new mobile suits through their paces, and Cole, the most mobile suit mad of them all, wants the first glimpse. With his friend Keith as a somewhat unwilling accomplice, he slips into the Albion's hangar. Both young men are in awe of the agile-looking Unit 1 and the hulking Unit 2, but Keith is more interested in the engineer. Nina arrives to shoo them away. Keith's flirting is more irritating than ingratiating, but it does give Cole cover to examine the mobile suits more closely, until Nina's mechanic friend, Maura, arrives. Most of the Albion's crew are spacenoids, and the locals are happy to humor their fascination with Earth phenomena, including recommending the best sites to watch the sunset. Orville, one of the Anaheim technicians who came with the Gundams, leaves the base under that pretense. 
As soon as he is out of sight, he makes radio contact with the nearby Xeon remnants. While Orville rendezvous with his co-conspirators, Captain Synapse and Torrington Base's commanding general unlock the facility's cache of nuclear weapons. The Unit 2 Gundam was designed to carry a nuclear warhead, and Synapse has orders from High Command to test this capability. Out in the desert, Gato, now disguised in a Federation uniform, gives a few last orders to his men before slipping into Torrington Base, hidden under a blanket in the back of Orville's borrowed jeep. Though the plan depends on it, he is disgusted by the lax security. He arrives at the Albion's hangar just after Nina and Mara have finished loading the nuclear warhead into Unit 2's bazooka. Cole and Keith are there too. Cole can't seem to keep himself away. They're on their way out when Gato slips past them and, before anyone can stop him, into the cockpit of the unguarded Unit 2. First to react is Cole, jumping into the Unit 1's cockpit while Gato is busy cutting his way out of the Albion's hangar. Before anyone else can move to stop him, the air raid sirens blare. Gato's men have unleashed a barrage of cluster bombs that rain fire and chaos on the whole base. Behind them come the mobile suits. The Federation soldiers are shocked by the reappearance of this defeated enemy and are slow to react. Only a handful of their mobile suits are ready for real combat, and the test pilot Kirks is cut down in short order by an enemy, Dom Tropen. Gato orders his troops to withdraw. The chaos they've already inflicted is distraction enough, but his own escape is blocked by Cole in the Unit 1 Gundam. The Federation test pilot squares off against his mysterious foe, Beam Saber Drawn. This is going to be a bit of a strange discussion for us because we're revisiting a uh, episode that we covered not all that long ago, and technically this is a separate release with some very slightly different content, but we've done all of this before, so we're going to do our best not to repeat anything that we said last time. Should make for a fairly short, by our standards, talk back because we covered a lot of ground last time. In general, we established we both like the first episode, we think it's strong as an opener, we're very curious to see, well, Tom knows where the story goes, I'm very curious to see where the story goes. We also talked about how it fits into this formula of first episodes of Gundam series, and because of that formula and because of a lot of other things about it that harken back to previous series, it, it really feels like one for the fans. It establishes a definitive story for the colony drop, which had not happened previously. There were competing, semi-conflicting stories for that before. We also talked about design, both of the mobile suits and the characters, the character acting in the way that they're animated, uh, in general, how much we liked the mannerisms, the characterization, how much we learn about the characters in just one short episode. The return of a certain amount of mobile suit gore and horror to the fighting. And finally, we touched on the cliffhanger ending, which is particularly good if you're going to release a first episode months ahead of the general release and you want to get people excited about your series, but feels unusual for a Gundam show. So with all of that out of the way, there are kind of two big new things to talk about this week. 
The first of them is, of course, that the actual final official release of this episode includes about a minute of additional content at the beginning. It features a flashback to the climactic battle of the One Year War, the Battle of Abawaku, uh, and shows us Commander Gato and his commanding officer friend Delaz as they decide to abandon the Xeon forces after the death of Supreme Commander Giren. There's not a like a ton going on there besides what I've just laid out for you, except that it does do quite a bit to establish the Gato character as a kind of throwback, an honor-bound, self-sacrificing kind of warrior guy who would rather die in battle than live with the shame of defeat. It establishes these things about Gato, but it also establishes this relationship with Delaz. I hope he's going to come up again later in the series because this scene makes him feel so important to Gato's whole arc. Throw your minds all the way back to the One Year War, and you'll remember there were quite a few different factions within Xeon, but it seems that Delaz is a Giranist true believer. That itself is interesting. First Gundam itself mostly focused on the other factions, Garma, Dozel, especially Cassilia in the latter half of the show, uh, and her machinations behind the scenes, behind Giran, literally behind Giran when she ends up shooting him through the back of the head. Whereas the two OVAs, both uh, 0080 and now 0083, have given us examples of Giranists, Commander Killing from 0080 and now Delaz. That Delaz is the kind of person for whom the ideology, the mission, the dream, the goal is more important than this war is really striking because we don't see a ton of characters like that in these Gundam series. We see more of the self-sacrificing type who say, I want to go down with the ship. I, it's shameful to survive when my <laughs> commanding officers are dead. Similar to Aramba Rawl. Well, or even to Haman, who is willing to die to get revenge. But Delaz says, more important even than the shame we feel, more important even than the disgrace of retreat, is achieving the goal. And to achieve the goal, we have to live. This echoes a long tradition of revenge stories in Japanese literature going back to the medieval period. Uh, the most famous in English is the Chushingura, or the 47 Ronin, the story of these retainers who, according to the rules of honor after the death of their master, should have killed themselves, but instead went into hiding for years, plotted their revenge against the guy who was responsible, and then ultimately enacted that revenge. But that's only one example of a huge variety of these kinds of revenge stories. This scene also dramatically recontextualizes how we see Gato vis-a-vis -vis this whole mission that he's on, because in the original preview version with no commanding officer established, we rather get the sense that Gato is running the show. Now it's much more natural to see Gato as merely one agent within a broad hierarchy, within a larger effort. Yeah, without the context of this scene, this could just be like a guerrilla attack, a small cell taking it upon themselves to act versus what feels like part of a much larger plan. The other thing that really kind of moved me about Delaz is that he recognizes that Gato will feel ashamed to run away. And he basically 
takes that shame on himself. He says, I am your commanding officer. Not technically, but, you know, close enough. I outrank you. (laughs) Your commanding officer is probably dead, so... Yeah, your ship has been destroyed. The chain of command is broken. But I'm ordering you to endure. I am ordering you to entrust all of this to me. You don't have to feel ashamed because you are acting under orders. You had to obey when I told you to do this. Any shame associated with these actions is mine. I think it's quite common for people actually to ship the two of them. That this like warrior bond that the two of them share is similar to the mixed romantic and feudal relationships that existed between warriors so frequently during the Japanese Middle Ages, the Sengoku Jidai and those periods. You know, you add in the drama of it all, Gato's tears of frustration. And it's so clear that Delaz cares for him. And Gato must care for and respect Delaz in return, or he would never have accepted this. One other tiny detail that this scene helps us establish. At the end of the One Year War, Gato was a lieutenant. At the beginning of what might be a new war... What rank does he have on his uniform when he goes to steal this Gundam? Why, it's a lieutenant's rank. So he is, in effect, picking up exactly where he left off. That's brilliant. Isn't that cool? Yeah. (laughs) I never put that together before. I'm going to need to continue thinking about that. (laughs) There are two other things I want to note about this opening scene. They don't show you very much of the battle, but they do convey some things really, really well in the visuals. Um, That when Gato first appears on the battlefield, he is piloting a Galgoog, and it's in unique colors. He is, by this point, well-established as an ace already. Second, the second time Gato appears, he is going to board a Dom. This tells us very clearly that his mobile suit has been destroyed or so badly damaged that he can't use it again and he's getting ready to go out in the next available mobile suit. I know it's a prototype Rick Dom too, don't at me. (laughs) We could just call them all Gundams and save a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's getting ready to board a Transformer. And um, (laughs) the other thing is purely metatextual, but by putting this scene at the beginning instead of the uh, mobile suit testing scene that's in the beginning of the preview and which in the actual episode immediately follows this one, they shift the focus, like metatextually, they shift the focus from Ko onto Gato. Adding the scene and putting it first makes Gato a and arguably the main character. Right. If they didn't want to have that effect, they could easily have had this be a flashback that Gato has later in the episode or even in a future episode. One other nice piece of kind of framing Because the events of the episode take place so close to the site of Operation British, the colony drop on Sydney, we have the return of Xeon at the site of one of their most notorious actions of the war. Probably the most notorious action they took in the war. So there's a a symbolic element to returning here. Mm -hmm. In addition to the convenience of, oh, there's a base and there's some new mobile suits and nukes. Right. For the Xeon Remnants, this is starting their counterattack, basically at ground zero of where the war began in the first place. There's also some parallelism here, and this would be a research topic probably, but to the extent that the colony drop is like an atomic bomb, the kind of uh, discomfort 
slash irony of them storing nuclear bombs at the site of a horrible, quote unquote, bombing is like tension over U.S. bases in Japan and whether or not they can store nukes there. From a purely practical perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense. If you're doing long-term storage of nuclear weapons, which seems to be the point of this Torrington base, you probably want them to be somewhere pretty far away from anything else. And out here in the wastelands of what used to be the area around Sydney, it's pretty desolate. Their flyover in the Albion also evokes uh, the history of nuclear testing in the South Pacific more broadly. The fact that they are flying in over the ocean and talking about these horrible military acts and these huge explosions. And in the post-war period, there was a massive amount of nuclear testing all over the South Pacific. The portrayal felt connected to mm. me. Yeah, I, uh, I think I know what you mean. I was struck during that scene on this watch through by the way Captain Synapse says this is the price of war but the cost is too high or something along those lines. And what struck me about it is that that feels like a line you can only say if you're on the winning side. Because for those Xeon remnants, they feel like they could pay any price. They could cause any amount of destruction if it would retroactively win this war. But would the feelings be different? Like, obviously, it's very easy for the winning side to say that the losing side's actions were unjustified. It becomes a lot more complicated for those people to have those conversations when the horrible thing was done by the winners. You know, would he be saying that it was too high a price to pay if it had won the Federation the war? Any discussion of, of war crimes, of actions in war that should or should not be permissible is often complicated by the feelings of the winners and losers and their relative positions after the fact. In First Gundam, there was that whole colony of people who were forcibly displaced so that Giren could build his really big space gun. And the space gun didn't win the war for Zeon. They did all of that and they still lost. So how much resentment do the people who once lived in that colony feel now about what they were forced to endure for the sake of defeat? Right. For people like Gato and Delaz, I kind of wonder if the desperate clinging to the desire for revenge, for the desire to restart the war, fight it again and win this time, doesn't come from that same source of resentment, this feeling that they did so much, suffered so much, endured and committed so many atrocities that to then lose is unacceptable. The only thing they can do is go back to the fight, suffer more, commit more and win to retroactively justify everything. You're effectively describing a sunk cost fallacy, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I've already done so many bad things, what's one more? Maybe sunk cost fallacy is the name of that submarine they use. <laughs> that would be a good submarine name. No, they actually call the submarine the Yukon. Yukon is a classification. All right, well, the fact that they call it a U-anything, again, very firm indications in this uh, first episode that we are talking about World War II again, everyone. Point of note, in the subtitles for this episode, it is the U-con, C-O-N. The name of this submarine has been translated or transliterated in different ways at different times. Did some of them call it Yukon, like the Yukon Territory? Yes. Some of them oh. call it Yukon, like the region in Canada. 
And then some of them call it um, Jukon or Yukon with a J. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the inconsistency in these is fascinating and makes it difficult to say like, oh, yeah, they're definitely likening this to a U-boat. Okay. But then, but then the code names are yes, in German. <laughs> absolutely. In this context, it really does feel like they're likening it to a U-boat. Gato's code name is Walfish, which is Whale. The blue-haired Orville's codename is Blau Angel, Blue Angel. Uh, which, fascinatingly, is a 1930 Marlena Dietrich movie and was the first feature-length German full talkie. Ooh. And is also a story about a kind of hapless man who falls in love with a cabaret dancer and it ruins his life. Hmm. Well, we'll see how Orville does in the next few episodes. I mean, to be fair to the movie, dude's life was not that great to start with. He was uh, a teacher who none of his students respected <laughs> and goes on to be even more of a clown and then to die. Yeesh. Grim. It's supposed to be a comedy. <laughs> you introduced this section by mentioning framing. And for a second there, I thought you were going to talk about the uh, aspect ratio of the two different versions. Oh, no. Do the youths even know about aspect ratio? I assume they must. It's not as noticeable a thing anymore because who makes square screened televisions? But uh, back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Basically that things made for TV used to be shot in an aspect ratio that was closer to square because that was the shape of most TV screens. And then when something had been shot in a more like cinematic format, they would either add black bars at the top and bottom to fill out the space on the screen, or they would just trim the sides out and you would lose parts of the frame, both on the left and right, in the modified version for TV. This film has been modified to fit your screen. Right. <laughs> this um, was a warning that appeared at the beginning of every VHS. <laughs> Most of them, anyhow. Uh, the question of what aspect ratio format to use for an OVA is an interesting question because it's never intended to be shown in a cinema. Mm -hmm. It's only ever for home video. Well, so we compared the two versions of this, the preview version and the what I'm calling like the final official version, but that's not actually a very good way to describe it. Um, compared them, I actually watched them side by side at one point, got them synced up so that I could tell what differences there were. And of course, the preview version was only ever released on VHS, and so we're watching that. I'm pretty sure the aspect ratio is actually the same as that on the Blu-ray, but the Blu-ray includes significantly more screen. It's sort of zoomed out, so there's bits along the edges that aren't in the VHS version. And I wanted to talk more generally about this because when it was made, this series, 0083, was made specifically for VHS and Laserdisc of the time and for TVs of the time. And so the ways in which it is made were calculated for that technology by people who were well familiar with it. And this has other effects as well, like the colors of the preview version. And I'm going to assume the colors of all the VHS copies of this show are noticeably different from those which appear in the Blu-ray. They're warmer. They're a bit washed out, but the level of contrast in them is significantly lower which means that all of the shadows are a little less dark. I assume the televisions that we use now have much greater range of colors that they can show clearly and also much greater range of dark to light. If I remember correctly, old CRTs, you couldn't get black black. You couldn't get 
part of the screen to be truly like black or even very close to it if the TV was on. What we have on the Blu-ray is probably like it's sharper. It looks gorgeous, but it's probably closer to what was actually drawn, but not what was intended to be seen. So there are a couple of interesting consequences to this. One is that, for example, Mora's hair looks a different color. In the VHS version, her hair looks quite reddish. In the Blu-ray, it's solidly brown. <laughs> Another is that the, the starker shadowing stands out much more, sharp lines between the different colors, um, and it makes the scenes that happen later in the episode at night way darker than they are in the VHS, way harder to make out what's going on. That is one aspect of the visual design I noticed on this rewatch that we didn't talk about previously, which is the extreme contrast. Lots of deep, dark, sharp shadows and very bright, sharp highlights. Which is just not as much the case in the original. Partly you're going to get that anyway because they alternate between the darkness of night and the blistering Australian sun. But a lot of that extreme contrast is mellowed out in the VHS version. The VHS also features different music, different sound effects, and different voice reads by the cast. That's particularly interesting about the voice reads. Hmm. One of the ones that stood out particularly to me is this one, when they're in the lunchroom and Ko approaches Nina. Here's the audio you'll hear on the Blu-ray version. And here's what it sounds like in the preview. In the preview, Ko sounds like he's whispering kind of conspiratorially. He sounds a little bit younger, he sounds a little bit less sure of himself, and he sounds a little bit less like socially oblivious. Mora also sounds quite different. Here's the Blu-ray version. And here's the preview version. The final version has her sounding a bit warmer, a bit deeper. And a little change in tone like that can pretty dramatically change how we perceive a character. And I've read that there was a re-recording between the preview version and the actual full official release. But what we listen to on the Blu-ray now is not the audio from the original release. In 2006, they did a Dolby 5.1 channel remastering. And for that, they basically redid all the sound. New mix, new sound effects, and they had all the voice actors come back and re-record their lines. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. I would assume because the original materials were not in a state where they could be just like reused. Yeah, I cannot imagine. <laughs> going to the expense of re-recording all of that otherwise. And you can't get the original audio in an international release. You can get it in a Japanese release, and I have placed the order, but it hasn't arrived yet. So before the end of the season, we will be able to compare the two, um, but not yet. Partly the reason that they redid the music is because the original version contained some songs that were very similar to other songs, <laughs> and for which permission had not been obtained. 
So uh, a significant number of tracks had to be changed. They also updated the sound effects. And I think that was mostly a matter of like the sound effects from the original sound like early 1990s sound effects and tastes change. So the sound effects from the remix sound like mid 2000s sound effects. To give you an example, here are some sound effects from the preview, which I'm going to assume are very similar to or the same as the ones from the actual release. And here is the same scene in the Blu-ray. There's a pretty noticeable difference between the two. Since I went into this episode knowing that we had already talked about, like, the important stuff, I decided to let myself off the chain and really focused in on incidental details, things in the background, stuff like that. Maybe not the most important things to talk about, but while we're here, it's fun. Let me point out a few of these. When we first meet Nina and Captain Synapse and the bridge crew of the Albion, whoever was drawing this scene took the opportunity to put a lot of little fun details in it. When Captain Synapse first walks in, we see Captain Pastorov is reading a small paper-bound book. It's written in Cyrillic, probably Russian. Um, some actual Russian speakers have looked at it and they say the text of the book is mostly gibberish. But <laughs> based on the title and some captions, it's like a style and phonetics manual about how to speak Russian. Huh. Which, if, like me, you're one of those sickos who likes noticing all the different languages that show up in the Universal Century and trying to figure out what they're actually speaking and what the place of all of these languages is. Here we have a guy with a Russian name reading a manual on how to speak Russian, possibly trying to reconnect with his roots, learning the language of his forebearers that he himself does not speak. Also noteworthy, on the back cover of this book, there's the logo for an actual Russian printing company that uh, goes back to the Soviet days. It's still around now, but it's called Prosvashenya, which means enlightenment. And then on the board behind them, somebody has written in some little Easter eggs. There's a reference to Ayogi Rin, Tomino's songwriting alias. Someone has written Kami Igusa, which is the neighborhood where the Sunrise offices are located. And someone has written a little copyright Sunrise Gundam up in one corner. Speaking of Nina, and we don't have an answer to this question, I just thought it was interesting. When they're all eating together in the cafeteria, or rather when Nina and Moira first show up, the reaction of the test pilots is to not just stand, which would be a rather old-fashioned way of being polite <laughs> to women, uh, but they stand at attention. Even though Nina is not a Federation officer, she doesn't outrank them technically speaking. Well, but maybe she does. It's, it's <laughs> unclear what relationship Anaheim and the Federation have in this circumstance and whether they're actually expected to stand at attention for her or not. Or are they just being polite? Or are they sucking up because they don't want to <laughs> be the one to pilot these new Gundams? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. it's kind of unclear why they do that. 
There's a bit in the Starship Troopers novel that I remember quite well where the main character is briefly assigned to guarding this civilian contractor who has some special skills. And he actually talks about this because he talks about like, look, if saluting this guy is going to make him happy, he's way more valuable to the war effort than I am. So whatever, I'll treat him like a general. (laughs) And I figure that's probably the same vibe with Nina. Like, as a systems engineer working on Gundams for Anaheim Electronics, she is a very important person to these test pilots, and they're going to treat her with every possible respect. Now, that may also be in line with actual military practice. I don't know. But it totally makes sense to me, and it's the kind of small gesture that tells us how important Nina is without anybody needing to tell us how important Nina is. Yeah, she's, she's an interesting one. I am excited to see more character development there. What role she plays in the rest of the series. I too am excited for more Nina. A thing that I have been saying (laughs) every day for the past (laughs) redacted number of years. Obviously not going to be confusing when I talk about Nina because talking about myself in the third person would be ridiculous. But when all of you (laughs) listeners start talking about Nina and I'm not sure which one of us you're talking about, that is going to be confusing. That's actually already happened to me once on Twitter. Somebody (laughs) made some comment about Gundam Nina that was, I guess, somewhat negative and I thought it was about me and I felt really sad. (laughs) I don't even remember it now, but it was very funny once I figured out they were talking about a character and not me. We need to come up with a system to make it clear. What if we called her Nina G for Nina Gundam, and we'll call you Nina G for Nina <laughs> Redacted. I know I'm public about my name, but we don't have to say it. <laughs> and now Tom's research on the Operation British Crater. I think I understand the science fiction writer's impulse to attach hard numbers to wholly fictional phenomena, but you have to really, really know your stuff in order to get those numbers anywhere near accurate. And sometimes if they're not, they just end up emphasizing how downright implausible the phenomenon you're describing really is. First Gundam, for example, never does give us specs for the Gundam, I think quite wisely. But dig into side materials with a mania for numbers, like data books, gunpla manuals, and fan wikis, and you get claims that the Gundam itself is 18 meters tall and weighs between 43 and 60 metric tons under Earth gravity, which would make it more than twice the size and about half the weight of a modern American main battle tank. But we can chalk all of that up to advanced future materials science. But when Captain Synapse of the Albion describes the Operation British colony drop that annihilated Sydney as having delivered an impact roughly equivalent to 60,000 megatons and having created a crater 500 kilometers wide, he has made the dire mistake of speaking entirely within numbers and units that we can comprehend and compare. Unfortunately, they turn out to be kind of incomprehensible if you start looking at them too closely. It's really hard to estimate the impact force of a falling colony because we know so little about the colony in question. How big was it? How full of stuff was it? What materials were used to make it? Even if we could guess at those, it's well established that the Operation British Colony was partly broken up during its atmospheric entry as the Federation forces tried in vain to destroy it. So how many pieces actually hit Sydney? How big were they? 
I have frequently annoyed Iraj with these questions. I think a safer approach is to compare the synapse numbers to similar real-world threats, nuclear bombs and asteroid impacts. When we say megaton in the explosives context, we mean the explosive force equivalent to 1 million tons of TNT. Trinity, the first nuclear bomb detonated during the Manhattan Project, had a yield of 25 kilotons. The little boy and fat man bombs were weaker, with yields of 15 and 21 kilotons respectively. RDS-1, the first Soviet nuke, likewise had a yield of 21 kilotons. The first bomb with a yield above 1 megaton was codenamed Mike, tested by Operation Ivy, not the band, in 1952. It delivered just over 10 megatons. The Soviets started testing megaton-scale bombs throughout the late 50s, as did the United Kingdom. And the People's Republic of China joined the party in 1967 with their 3.3 megaton bomb detonated on a testing range at Lop Nur. Hey, you remember Lop Nur, right? That's the wandering salt lake that's so famously featured in First Gundam's Desperately Seeking Salt episode. France then followed suit in 1968 with a 2.6 megaton bomb. The other nuclear powers, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea, have never detonated a bomb with a yield above one megaton, at least so far as we know. The most powerful bomb ever detonated, the Soviet Tsar Bomba, detonated in 1961, had a theoretical potential yield of 100 megatons, but it was limited down to only 50 megatons for the test, in part to minimize catastrophic fallout, and in part because there would have been no way for the bomber that dropped the thing to escape the blast radius in time. Even as it was, they thought it was only a 50-50 chance that the crew was going to survive. The bomb itself weighed 27 metric tons, or roughly half a Gundam. When it did go off, it was an airburst bomb and detonated some 13,000 feet above ground. It leveled everything within about 35 miles. Wooden structures within 100 miles were demolished, and it shattered windows more than 500 miles away, including some as far away as Finland. The mushroom cloud it created was seven times taller than Mount Everest, and that was less than one one-thousandth of the claimed power of the Operation British Drop. In point of fact, the total yield of all known nuclear detonations to date is only about 540 megatons. In January 2022, non-proliferation-focused NGO the Arms Control Association published a fact sheet in which they estimated that there were roughly 13,000 nuclear warheads in the world today, with around 9,600 in active service and a further 3,400 retired but not yet dismantled. Of those, the vast majority have yields well under one megaton. Firm numbers for nuclear arsenals are hard to come by since they are naturally treated as closely held state secrets, but the U.S. has actually been relatively transparent about its stockpile. The U.S. has around 5,200 warheads, most with yields well under half a megaton. The military doctrine being that multiple lower-yield nuclear warheads can have the same destructive effect across the same area while consuming significantly less fissile material. The most powerful U.S. warhead today, actually slated for retirement by the Biden administration just a few months ago, has a variable yield that maxes out at 1.2 megatons, but the U.S. only ever produced 650 of these. The rest in the U.S. arsenal range from one-third of a kiloton to 455 kilotons. Other nuclear-capable nations, especially Russia, are said to have higher-yield warheads in their arsenals, but firm numbers are elusive and estimates are all over the map. Given that pro- and anti-Russian sources alike have strong incentives to exaggerate the country's destructive capabilities, 
we should probably take claims of 50 megaton missiles and 100 megaton torpedoes with a pinch of irradiated salt from the Labnar test site. Considering the size of Russia's arsenal, which is estimated to be around 6,000 warheads and growing, and the expense and limited utility of multi-megaton bombs, the vast majority of Russian nuclear weapons are probably like the US ones with yields less than one megaton. But if we're being generous and we assume that the average yield for every single nuclear warhead in existence today is about one megaton, then the Operation British Colony Drop still delivered more than four times the destructive force of every single nuclear weapon in the world exploding simultaneously. But in fairness to Gobo Fuyunori, screenwriter for this episode, nuclear arsenals today are pretty tiny compared to where they stood during the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. Yields were also larger back then. The US deployed a number of 25 megaton and 9 megaton bombs, and the Soviet Union had their own weapons on the same scale. In 1990, there were roughly 52,000 nuclear warheads, 11,000 in the US, 39,000 in the Soviet Union, and the balance divided among the other nuclear nations. It seems plausible to me that the 60,000 megaton number quoted in this episode was chosen because it was a rough estimate for the combined power of all such weapons which existed at the time. But now to get a sense of the scale of what it would take to create a 500 kilometer wide hole where a continent used to be. Synapse calls this the largest man-made crater in the world, and he's definitely right about that, but he's also kind of underselling it. The biggest known crater on Earth, man-made or naturally formed, is the Fredefort Impact Crater in South Africa. Created by the impact of a city-sized asteroid about 2 billion years ago, the crater is 300 kilometers across. Massive, staggeringly huge, and yet vastly smaller than the Operation British Crater. The Chicxulub Impact Crater off the north coast of the Yucatan Peninsula is considered to be the second largest crater on Earth. That one is the asteroid impact generally believed to have triggered the mass extinction of the dinosaurs but the crater it left behind might be as small as 180 kilometers, or perhaps 300 kilometers at the large end. The university's Space Research Association has estimated that it would take an impact with the equivalent energy of 87 million megatons in order to create a 200-kilometer crater, roughly on the scale of the Fredefort and Chicxulub craters. A 500-kilometer crater, like the one in the show, is so much larger than anything found on Earth that they didn't even bother doing the estimates up to that scale. 60,000 megatons, while a lot of megatons, a staggering number of megatons if we're talking about bombs, still ought to create a crater of less than 20 kilometers across. Next time on episode 8.2, the danger is to the body and it can kill. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, Episode 2, and A Burning Heart. My beautiful, sweet, innocent Gundams have never hurt anyone! Cracking up. Wait, why is there an eye catch in this? This is my emotional support mechanic. I'm the enemy, you idiot! Giant babies. What's she going to do? Glower at them? Will-o-wisps. 
don't lose sight of the wind conditions. Wanderer above a sea of fog. And I'll get you next time, you meddling ensigns. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. The songs used in the April Fool's Day advertisements are Glitch Game Waiting Muzak by Trakistador, Smirking Emoji by Muzak Efron, Harmful or Fatal by Kevin McLeod, and Patriotic Feelings by Max Co. Music. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week was submitted by Anonymous, and it's that... Hey, I'm not reading this. This is slander. I do not have bad taste in mobile suits. Nina? Nina, how did this get in here? Nina, who edited my script? Don't you muttly laugh at me. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? No, I'm just remembering one that I reposted recently that was like, Leo's whenever something goes even slightly wrong. And it was like, everything is ruined forever, I want to die. (laughs) I'm sorry that something went slightly wrong. We were interrupted after we, like, sat in here and got Mm -hmm. ready to record. Mm -hmm. We were interrupted, and it wasn't even for something cool for me. (laughs) We agreed that I'm the head of HR. Terrible idea. (laughs) Do you have any, um, coasters over there? I have a coaster, yeah. Oh, do you need it? No. I'm going to frisbee it at you. (laughs) Sorry. Small leather Icelands move very quickly, apparently. You did say it was a mystery, and I've actually been reading a lot of those recently. I'm something of an authority on the subject. (laughs) And uh, I think we're going to need a funny little Belgian man figure out your migraines. Are you sure we don't need a weirdo with ADHD and his PTSD-stricken friend? We have those. They're in this room with us right now, (laughs) Nina. I really think that you should, like, tweet or share or something your theory that Holmes actually has ADHD, because I love it. (laughs) Ugh, I'm bored. I'm going to lay on the couch and be grumpy and get high. that Edith Wharton is incredible. That is not my fault. Sound effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once these go by, I'll introduce another, like, compare, compare. 
Yeah. Little, sound effects? Little do they know, we don't actually live in New York. We're just really good at <laughs> sound effects that make it sound like we live in New York. It's just me in the background going, wee-oo, wee-oo, <laughs> Are you going to do the Hey Teens Peppy or the Hey Teens, like, it's a power snack? <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in between the two. Okay. A little bit of both. Okay. Because it's a good one for those power snack vibes. Happily, Gordon over at the Gund- Happily, Gordon at the... Happily, Gordon over at the Gundam... <laughs> in your time as it was in ours. Ugh. It's one of those things where the sound of my own voice has gotten weird. Mm.